As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hi, Amber. Glad to be here again. We also have a special guest co-host this week, Andrew Strickler. Glad to be here. Hi, Amber. Andrew, it's nice to have you. You are a frequent guest on Pro Se, so we thought as we sort of usher in an era where we're going to have several different guest hosts on the show, you'd be a great first pick. Hey, I, I agree. Andrew, you've you've been a guest several times. You were a very logical choice for the first guest host to rotate in. Uh, how are you feeling so far, taking to the podcast waters? You're a whole 40 seconds into your podcasting career as a host. How's it going? Well, I'm a little nervous. I know it's uh, I, have, <laughs> I have big shoes to fill, uh, and it's such a, a great program you guys have put together. I just uh, hope to make a contribution. Yes. Uh, and we do have a very interesting show. I know you guys um, have already had um, a very interesting talk with Chris Villani uh, for our main segment. What was that all about, Amber? Yeah, we had a really nice chat. Andrew and I talked to him about what's going on with Varsity Blues, which we talked about a lot when that college admissions scandal going back first to that broke. Well. Yes. Yeah, but now we're in a new phase where there was the first actual trial. Um, so we talked to Chris, who was there for all of that, and he kind of broke down the trial for us, but also looking forward what it means for the additional defendants that are still awaiting their day in court. So it was a great talk. Uh, we're looking very forward to hearing that, um, but we do have some interesting news stories to get to first. And Amber, I know that there is some interesting uh, employment, uh, sort of discrimination law, drama, a clashing of regulators that uh, that I think you want to fill us in on. What's that all about? I mean, pro se listeners know that I can't pass up a good employment law story. So here we are again. Um, yeah, like you said, Alex, this one's a little bit of a twisty one. It's a weird almost turf war between the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and California's anti-bias watchdog. So it's like the state analog of the EEOC. Mm -hmm. That one's called the Department of Fair Employment and Housing. This all centers around the gaming company Activision Blizzard. You may know them by their big titles. They put out games like Call of Duty and World of Warcraft. So it's a big well-known gaming company. Big gaming company, yeah. Yeah, the EEOC has reached an $18 million settlement with them to resolve allegations that the, the company basically had a pretty terrible sexist workplace culture that caused a lot of bias and discrimination against women. The twist here, though, is that the California agency has asked the court for permission to oppose that settlement. So aren't these watchdogs usually on the same side of things? What's going on here? Yeah, it's weird, right? Uh, this is why I wanted to break it down. Um, before we get fully into why the California watchdog is against this. Let me tell you more about the underlying EEOC case. That one alleges that Activision violated Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, that it subjected women to sex-based bias, harassment, pregnancy bias, paying women less than men, retaliated against the people that complained, um, a, a really broad array of charges there. The commission suit was the product of a, a three-year investigation, so it started all the way back in 2018. If the judge approves the settlement, 
Activision Blizzard would compensate the women and also revamp all of its policies to prevent this kind of bias moving forward. So that's all pretty pro forma as far as the as far as EEOC investigations and lawsuits go. But uh, I I know that I think the the intrigue emerges here with the state regulator raising some hay about it. What exactly is their is their issue? Yes. Yeah, so the state regulator was also looking into Activision Blizzard. In California. In California. And they filed their own suit against the company in July. In that suit, California says a lot of similar things that Activision subjects women to, quote, constant Mm -hmm. sexual harassment. That includes groping, lewd advances, that there's retaliation for people that complain. On top of the harassment, the California suit talks about how women are assigned lower-level jobs in the company and often progress through the the hierarchy of the company at slower rates than men. And there's even one really just egregious example in the suit that's the the California-brought suit about a woman who actually committed suicide on a business trip after she was harassed by a male supervisor. So we're talking about some really serious allegations here. Mm -hmm. When it comes to opposing what the EEOC settlement includes – The California watchdog basically says the settlement would cause harm to their suit because they say it would release Activision from the state law claims as well. And they're also worried that Activision could destroy or tamper with evidence once the EEOC settlement takes effect. Interesting. So they're basically claiming that their part of this case is going to be undermined by the other side. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's basically a war of like, hey, whose case is more important? Because they're alleging, you know, a universe of same and similar claims, mm-hmm. some under state law, some under federal law. And now it's a fight about whose claims reign supreme in holding Activision accountable. Interesting. Okay. So the EEOC must think that they are doing the right thing here. How have they responded? They went all out. Um, here's some examples of the things they said in response to the California watchdog. They said that the California group is patently incorrect to argue that the settlement waives the state law claims or requires any evidence um, related to the lawsuit to be destroyed or tampered with in any way. The EEOC says that only the federal Title VII claims, not anything related to state law, would be resolved by the settlement, and that Activision had even agreed to notify all the claimants of the pending state suit. Um, In addition, EEOC said that Their California counterpart had expressly agreed not to investigate harassment claims at Activision as part of an interagency work-sharing agreement. So basically, the EEOC says they had an agreement. EEOC was going to handle the sexual harassment arm of this. And um, because of that pact, they had left um, some things on the table that they otherwise would investigate. They were going to leave it to the state to handle um, claims of... uh, Pay and promotion-related discrimination. So they, so they 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 don't just if you if I can like sure. clarify like they they don't see them as totally conflicting. They see them as like pursuing somewhat narrower buckets of general discrimination claims. Yeah, and this is not super uncommon. I mean, the EEOC does work with its state analogs. Yeah, all the time because there's a lot of overlapping laws in the employment world where you could face charges under the state law or the federal law or both. Um, mm-hmm. They don't; they're not exclusive. So this happens fairly often. But what's weird here is the the undermining of a settlement that's reached by the EEOC. Right. Yeah. 
So they also went on to say that they had invited the state agency to participate in pre-suit settlement talks with Activision Blizzard. But the state agency just didn't respond to that and then filed their own suit. That they didn't tell the EEOC they were going to do it. Mm. Just out of the blue, they were sort of surprised that that happened. And then finally, the EEOC also said the state shouldn't be able to scuttle what's going on here with the deal because the state's own legal team until recently had included two former EEOC lawyers who were conflicted out because they'd actually worked on the investigation against Activision Blizzard before they switched to the state agency. So you can see a lot of like turf stuff going on here. Well, it does. It sounds like a sort of a turf war and, and some lawyers feeling like they had their toes stepped on. You know, we had a deal and you guys aren't fu- uh, picking up your end of it and we want to take the lead. Yeah. And I think what we're seeing is just, you know, it, it, as you would expect with a turf war, a real just tug of war and all these filings. Yeah. Um, but I did, you know, we're, we're nowhere near resolved here. We've got to see what the court decides to do about whether or not the state can intervene. And then there'd have to be some potentially a fairness hearing about the settlement down the road. So we're several months away from that. But No matter what happens with this scuffle between the EEOC and its state, California state analog, Activision Blizzard is just in a lot of legal trouble in general. Yeah, you see, I I don't follow the gaming industry that closely because I... I want to like not be so internet poisoned as I already am, (laughs) but I but I know enough to know that they like have quite a bit of uh, quite a few legal headaches. What else? Like what else is going on? Here's how I would sort of frame this for anybody who, like you, Alex, isn't maybe following this particular industry. Remember a couple years ago when anytime someone would mention Uber, you'd be like, oh, yeah, they got a lot of lawsuits against them. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) That's now Activision Blizzard. So in addition to these two discrimination things going on that have to be resolved, um, they were also recently hit with an unfair labor practice charge at the National Labor Relations Board. Yep. That was uh, filed by the Communication Workers of America on behalf of a group formed by Activision employees on the on the backs of all of these allegations about their terrible culture and mm-hmm. how it's impacting workers. So that charge alleged that the company interrogated and surveilled workers and threatened them for trying to exercise their organizing rights. So a pretty serious they, charge leveled at them. Yeah, that they had tried to they were trying to unionize effectively yep. and the company was like being was was cracking down on that illegally. Yeah. yeah. And then shareholders have also sued Activision Blizzard. They've claimed the company and ex- its executives hid all of the stuff that was going on and in particular hid the fact that the state of California was investigating the treatment of women at the company. That has led to a flurry of changes at the company. Um, The chief legal officer recently uh, announced that she was leaving the company. That comes on the heels of Blizzard's president stepping down. Mm. And then Activision Blizzard is also being investigated by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. So (laughs) the hits keep coming for this company. And I bring up this turf war between the two employment watchdogs because it is very interesting. You just don't see this every day. But also more broadly, to sort of put on everyone's radar that it will be interesting to see how a a gaming tech company that has an alleged bro culture is held to account. And that's going to be one I think we're all going to want to see how that plays out. Absolutely. All right. Next up, we got something that sort of treads into... uh, Legal ethics, uh, the shirking thereof in certain uh, instances, which I know, Andrew, uh, we've we've had you on the show to talk about before. And uh, this is a very interesting story that I think uh, you're ready to tell us about. What's it all about? Well, it is a topic uh, near and dear to my heart, legal ethics. Uh, yes. And, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. There are a lot of complicated questions, but this 
story brings up a very obvious standard I think we can all agree on. Mm-hmm. As a lawyer, you don't forge a federal judge's signature on a fake court document and then lie to your clients, right? <laughs> this is- Surprised you even have to tell people that, Andrew, but yeah, well, that a- seems well, like one people state should facts. I mean, I think that's, I think that's generally good, <laughs> good counsel, yeah. Let's, let's set a baseline, you know, let's, yeah. let's, let's help people. So uh, <laughs> this case involves a Pennsylvania lawyer who actually managed to do all of these things and still escape disbarment. Uh, yeah. How did this attorney get out of um, bigger trouble? Um, set us up. What exactly happened? So a few days ago, an attorney named Irene Costello got an 18-month suspension for forging the signature of New York's chief federal bankruptcy judge on a restraining order that she'd actually created herself. And the story goes that Costello emailed these documents to a client who was facing a possible eviction of her beauty salon business in Harlem. Another lawyer who was also representing the same client saw the documents, had questions about their authenticity, took them to a federal trustee, and that's what got this started for Costello. Yeah, so this is important to unpack because this did like make the rounds in the legal sort of, you know, it's in the somewhat gossipy corners of the legal media or whatever. It's like you faked a a judge's signature on a document. That's really crazy. And like you say, she got an 18-month suspension for it. But when you dig into the facts a little bit, this is a, it was a, she faked the signature, put it on a fake court document, but it was never filed in court. She gave it only to the client to, I guess, assuage this client's worries about something. What exactly was the thinking behind her, behind this attorney making this sort of forged signature? Right. Well, so her story uh, through a couple of different disciplinary actions, one in Pennsylvania and one in New York, was that her goal had been to soothe this particularly anxious client who was very freaked out about the eviction process and her other problems. And she wanted to make this client believe that the her landlord's state eviction proceeding was going to be on the shelf had been put on the shelf by this federal court. Okay. And you look at the disciplinary action in New York about this, and it's it's very interesting because as bad as the misconduct is and, and appears, she actually was credited for all kinds of mitigating circumstances okay. despite some extremely bad decisions along the way. It's worth noting that when Costello talked about the client and argued for mitigation in the federal court, um, a district court judge there said, this was outrageous. There's no way you're going to get out of this. And she was suspended there. In the state case, the state disciplinary case in New York, she got a lot of credit on a bunch of different things, including for quickly recognizing the seriousness of the misconduct, for apologizing, and for stopping practice voluntarily. Those are pretty typical kind of mitigating factors. Mm -hmm. Um, Cooperation, recognizing the error of your ways. Generally speaking, attorneys will get some credit for that. The interesting part here is that she got further credit for what the court called, quote, certain extraordinary circumstances in her personal life, which included some substance abuse issues, which she was seeking treatment for. She had a clean disciplinary record. 
And it was very interesting because the court said, you know, in this case, we had somebody who uh, did a very, very bad thing, but they were not motivated by money. They were trying to help a client in a misguided way, uh, but it was in the service of a client. Mm -hmm. Andrew, do you think that was the real key here? Because I did sort of expect when I first clicked on the headline of the story for it to be a typical like you know, lawyer does unethical thing to win case or make extra money or, you know, the sort of the self-motivated things you're used to. Yeah, I, I think it was a combination of two things. One was that, again, however misguided, she was trying to help her client. Also very important was she didn't file the forged document right. with the forged signature in court. And I think reading between the lines, the, the New York appellate decision is saying, Lying is very, very bad. Lying to your client is maybe a little less bad than lying to the court. <laughs> and with all of these other mitigating circumstances, we're going to give her a second shot. Now, Costello was already in the middle of a two-year suspension from practicing in New York federal court for this same problem. But with this decision, she will be able to apply for reinstatement to the New York bar by late next year. I almost hate to leave us with a takeaway where it's like, lying to a judge is the worst. Lying to your client, mm, <laughs> a little better. It's, it's not great. I, I got to say, it looks <laughs> it looks really bad. And, uh, and I, I'd say she dodged a bullet for sure. As a lawyer... Ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. The first jury trial over the Varsity Blues college admission scheme concluded last week with a big win for prosecutors. But that's not the end of the story. Other wealthy parents are awaiting their day in court, and a lot can be learned about what may be in store for them based on this trial. Our own Varsity Blues expert is here to talk about it, Chris Villani, our Boston courts reporter. Welcome back to Per Se, Chris. Thanks for having me. It's always good to hear you talk about these cases because you do such a nice job unpacking what is a lot of detail here. Um, I'd like to just start with the trial we saw play out. What was the action like in court? I know you were there. Um, tell us the whole overview here. Yeah, well, as you might imagine, first and foremost, it was different than what we thought the trial was going to look like due to the pandemic. It was a relatively sparsely populated courtroom compared to what would have been packed in shoulder to shoulder, hundreds of people, waiting list a mile long for the press to get in. Didn't have to deal with any of that because you had the social distancing measures and just capacity restrictions and everything was available on Zoom, which was great in terms of public access. But the trial itself was three weeks of delving into the mind and the words of Rick Singer without actually hearing from Rick Singer, the Varsity Blues mastermind. And that was the biggest question looming over the case going in. Would the feds call him? It was a big question for practical reasons. Calling Singer probably would have added a week or two to the trial. The cross-examination would have been extensive. But it was also a question in terms of exactly how the jury would hear about 
his so-called side door scheme. And these two parents, John Wilson, a hedge fund founder who's from right here in Massachusetts, and Gamal Abdelaziz, who was a casino executive who lives uh, out in Las Vegas, they were charged and now stand convicted of paying large sums of money, uh, close to $2 million in the case of Wilson, to try to get their kids or to get their kids into college as athletic recruits with phony credentials. So that was the crux of the scheme we heard about. And you've probably heard about test cheating when it comes to Varsity Blues. That's a separate trial. That's happening later. This was just focused on the side door. So the jurors heard a lot of recorded conversations between Singer and these two men, as well as some other uh, co-conspirators, some other folks who have pled guilty, parents who pled guilty along the way. They saw email exchanges between these two men and Rick Singer. It was a lot of Singer without Singer actually setting foot in the courtroom, and it was enough for prosecutors, uh, as we all know now, to score a clean sweep in terms of convictions. I One sort of follow-up so I understand exactly how it played out. It seems pretty clear to me what the government was arguing, you know, that they actively fully participated in this scheme to get their kids into these elite colleges. But what did the parents use as their defense? Was it just, hey, it wasn't us, it was Singer? Basically, yeah, I was pointing the finger at the empty chair. So you had uh, a number of charges here, including conspiracy charges. So the crux of those charges goes to state of mind. And what the argument was from Wilson and Abdelaziz is their state of mind was that they were paying legitimate donations either to the University of Southern California, Harvard, Stanford, or through Singer's Charity, the Key Worldwide Foundation. And these donations were a means to give their kids a leg up in the admissions process. It's not terribly different from buying the you know, buying a building, opening up the Chris Villani Center at Harvard. And what do you know? Chris Villani's kid, Maverick, gets into Harvard. Who saw that coming? That's perfectly <laughs> legal. And these parents were trying to argue that they thought they were doing something that Singer presented as legal. Uh, Singer talked about it in public, talked about writing a book about it, didn't make didn't make it seem like he was doing something that would uh, land him in the crosshairs of, of the FBI and the IRS and federal investigators. So that was the argument throughout. There wasn't much of a defense put on, as is normally the case. The prosecution's case in chief was probably 95 percent of the trial it was a very short defense put on at the end, primarily by Wilson, almost exclusively by Wilson. But what they tried to do throughout was Hammer Singer as a con man who duped them like he duped everybody else. This guy's an admitted liar, which is why the government didn't call him. He has more baggage than your typical cooperating witness, but just hammered away at this con man, effectively stole our money, lied to us, and made it seem like he was on the up and up when clearly that was not the case. It wasn't an argument that resonated with the jury, at least not enough to secure any acquittals, but that was the foundation of their argument throughout. Chris, I'm surprised you're not talking more about uh, the defense playing to the sympathies of jurors and talking about, uh, you know, parents just trying to do something for their children. Uh, you know, that seems like it would have been a, a, a pretty obvious track for the defense to take here. Did Was that discussed? A little bit, but you have to remember, these are not necessarily sympathetic defendants. Uh, they might be nice guys. I don't know them personally. But when you hear testimony, and this is actual testimony, that John Wilson, for his 21st birthday, his son's 21st birthday, his son's named Johnny, 
arranged for a limousine to drive Johnny and all his friends um, from Los Angeles to Las Vegas, where they stayed at a hotel with a $3,000 expense account, went to clubs with $1,000 bottle service. And somehow, I don't even know this was an activity you could do, went to some sort of, I guess, theme park, for lack of a better phrase, and crushed cars in an M1 Abrams tank. Normal 21st birthday activities. Relatable. Super relatable. <laughs> These are, yeah. Uh, just your for, average for, mom and dad just trying to get through the day with their kids. For my 21st, I remember drinking way too much beer and making everybody drive to a, a diner outside Syracuse in a snowstorm. There were no tanks involved, to the best of my recollection. But, Slightly more relatable, Chris, but maybe you did it yeah. wrong. Maybe you needed a limo and I think tanks. I did. I don't know. I think I did it wrong. I needed at least one tank in the equation. <laughs> so, you know, these were not, these are just not overly sympathetic parents. And, and, and I think when you look at the reaction, I've been covering crimes for, for a long time, white collar and violent crime, including some of the worst violent crime, uh, you know, that I won't even get into details here. But I don't know that I've seen the type of vitriol, even for murderers and rapists, that I've seen for these people who had all the advantages in the world, their kids had all the advantages in the world, and still, the government argues, chose to cheat the system and cheat other deserving students out of uh, their spots in, in college. And that was the argument that the government made really from opening statements on through. So playing up that angle, and, and we've also seen it at the sentencing hearings, right? I mean, that's been argued by parents who pled guilty. I love my kid. I was just trying to do what's best for my kid. Felicity Huffman tried it going all the way back to the beginning when she was one of the first, actually the first parent sentenced. And Judge Talwani in that case said, yeah, I love my kid too. We all love our kids. It doesn't mean that we cheat or lie or pay bribes to get our kids into college. So uh, it, it is an argument. I just don't know that it was a winning one with this particular set of facts. It's an ugly set of facts. And I think that's why the defense said, we know we have ugly facts here. So let's blame these ugly facts on someone who is an admitted liar and crook and see if that works. OK, so we had a pretty decisive victory here for the prosecution, for the government. Um, there are other cases that are still moving through the system and toward trial. What are the takeaways that the government is, is going to have after this big win? Well, the biggest one is you don't need Singer to secure a conviction. And that's going to be somewhat fact-dependent because it depends on what's on these tapes. Now, they have two sets of recordings for Singer. They have the wiretap that was approved by a court order prior to Singer becoming a cooperator. Then you have the consensual recordings where Singer is talking to folks who had engaged in his schemes in the past. He makes up a ruse while being audited by the IRS and then tries to incriminate them that way. So how clear are the tapes? There are some, Gordon Kaplan comes to mind, of course, the, the big law attorney, uh, former Wilkie Farr chair. It's very clear what, what they're trying to do. You can see why Kaplan pled guilty early on. Uh, that would have been a very difficult tape to explain away. Wilson had a very tough tape to explain away when he actually jokes about wanting a two-for-one special because he's trying to get his twin daughters into Harvard and Stanford through this so-called side-door scheme. So if those tapes are clear, it's powerful evidence, and if they can just authenticate it with FBI agents and IRS agents and things like that, they don't need to call Singer. So that's probably the biggest takeaway uh, from from the government's perspective, I think for the defense, it's looking at some of the arguments. They're, they're always going to blame Singer. He, he's just the obvious fall guy here. So I think there'll be some element of that. But remember, in addition to parents, we also have 
athletic department officials or one official, Donna Heinel, and a coach, Jovan Vavik, who is the head coach uh, of USC water polo for a lot of years, kind of the Bill Belichick of, of water polo, as he was described, won a ton of national championships. So they're going to trial as well. And Donna Heinel has, through her attorneys, flat out said, USC is making me the scapegoat here. So I think from the defense perspective, you're going to see more of an examination of the admissions process, the fundraising process, the pressure that's put on coaches and administrators in the vast majority of sports, which is outside of football and men's basketball and a few other sports at certain colleges. They all lose money. So the pressure that's put on these coaches and officials to, to fundraise and the idea that the university is being painted as the quote-unquote victim here is not exactly backed up by the facts. So I think we'll see a closer examination of that in the next trial, which is Donna Heinel's trial that starts next month. Chris, I'm curious about uh, the possibilities of appeals for these defendants. Uh, did anything come up in the trial that you think opened the door for a defense appeal in terms of juries, uh, motions, decisions, that kind of thing? Sure. Uh, two big things come to mind. One's a pure question of law that's certainly going to be part of the appeal. And one attorney told me could be even a, a possible Supreme Court appeal down the line. And that's the question of property. Is an admission slot property in the same way that jewelry or money or any other commodity is? And this is also the subject of the Bridgegate case. Now, after Bridgegate, the there were two rulings in Massachusetts federal court that went different ways. So you've heard of a circuit split. We have a judge split in Boston. Nathaniel Gordon, who presided over the trial of the parents that just wrapped up, he said admission slots are property. Judge Talwani, who has Donna Heinel's trial and also Jovan Vavik's trial, she said the opposite. It's not property. So the First Circuit's going to have to sort this out. This applies to the fraud counts uh, and satisfying the elements of wire fraud and mail fraud. So this is going to be important for the First Circuit to sort out. Reasonable minds can differ on it. They already have uh, on the federal bench. If we get a split decision, maybe an embank ruling, it's not inconceivable that this could wind up before the Supreme Court down the line. So that's one. So on the property one, I love questions like that because it feels like professors out there should put that on a law school exam real fast before it gets settled. Um, but are there others? I mean, is there anything maybe a little less lofty that won't make it to the Supreme Court but could still be grounds for appeal? Sure. Uh, the biggest evidence-based uh, issue that I that I saw was a video of Rick Singer speaking to a group of Starbucks employees. By employees, I mean executives, not like baristas. And he's talking about his side door scheme and he's making it sound legitimate. First of all, he's talking about it in public. Not a lot of criminals show up at a, a corporate board meeting when they're, they know they're being videotaped and talk about this scheme. He talked about doing hundreds of them. He talked about how it was going to, uh, he was going to write a book about it. He went through all of this, making it sound like this was just his business. This is what he does. The parents wanted to play that video to show, look, this is what this guy was selling. Who would watch this and think that he's trying to lump Starbucks into some broad, sprawling conspiracy? That's ridiculous. Judge Gordon wouldn't let it in. And at the time, Judge Gordon told the attorney for Abdelaziz, Nixon Peabody's Brian Kelly, you may have an appellate issue here and maybe you'll get a different judge to, to look at it differently, but I'm not letting this tape in. It was, the parents argue, powerful exculpatory evidence that was not allowed to go before the jury. And that's certainly going to be a big part of the appeal. 
That's fascinating. I mean, the fact that uh, in a conspiracy case in particular, you're talking so much about state of mind and about who's working with who and who knew what when, having a uh, a cooperator and the, your primary witness being out uh, literally giving speeches about what he's up to is a pretty unusual, uh, great stuff for appeal. Yeah, Singer's an unusual guy. And selfishly, I'm hoping... I'm not betting on it, but I'm hoping he gets called uh, at some point because I I would love to hear from him. We've heard from him in so many different ways, but to get him up on the witness stand, this is just the the trial watcher, the court reporting nerd in me. I I would like to see it. I don't know that the government would. There was something floated out there by one attorney I talked to that you could take a huge risk if you're the defense and try to call Singer as a hostile witness. Of course, he has the ability to bring in a ton of incriminating evidence about your client, which is probably why you don't do it. But then you have the chance to cross-examine him. Then you have a chance to make the argument. And I'm quoting the attorney I spoke to who said, you know, look at this slime ball. The feds didn't even want you to hear from him because of how scummy he is, but we wanted you to get the full story. Super risky. I don't know if I would advise it. You really got to have confidence in your set of facts and probably confidence in your ability as a cross-examining attorney. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about today, um, you know, we've seen this big verdict that um, went against the parents, that the the prosecutors won. You've just explained how risky some of the strategies could be moving forward. Do you call Singer? Do you not? Like, what what goes on there? Um, are some of the remaining parents going to opt to settle and, and not see this through to trial now that they've seen this play out in the first case? Yeah, always a possibility. One of the huge benefits, of course, of not going first is you have these lessons learned and the ability to reevaluate. We saw one of the parents, uh, Marcy Palatella, plead guilty on the eve of trial. Guilty pleas on the eve of trial are incredibly common, of course. And in this, I don't have a great explanation for it, but there was a deferred prosecution agreement, the first one out of 57 people charged that was reached just a couple of days ago with William Ferguson, the former Wake Forest volleyball coach. Uh, Why the feds agreed to this, I'm not sure. I know that Jovan Vavik has been, through his lawyers, sort of angling for something similar that uh, the feds could drop this and maybe have some sort of an agreement there that that spares him having to go to a trial. And now they have a little bit more time because Heinel's going to go first in November. He was severed off from Heinel's trial. They were going to go together. And now they're being tried separately. So presumably he would be, I guess, sometime in the spring. You have the same prosecutors on a lot of these cases. So I don't know that you can overlap. You got to kind of do them one at a time. Uh, and of course, the same judge in that case. So she can't try both cases at once. So there's a little bit of time and, and maybe they'll be able to work something out there. Uh, but if you're the parents, uh, especially there's one remaining parent who's involved in the side door scheme. That's uh, Amin Corey, who wouldn't be tried until I think next spring. And you just saw convictions without Singer even taking the stand. You probably do have to evaluate, look at your facts, look at your case, your defense and say, you know, is this an uphill climb or are we better off taking a deal at this point, especially when parents have not been looking at huge prison terms here. The longest is still nine months for Doug Hodge, the former PIMCO CEO. So, Chris, a lot yet to come that we'll be watching uh, your reporting to hear all about. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Anytime. Thanks for having me. We 
like to end our show with something offbeat. And Alex, you have one from your very own beat, Trade, this week. Yes, we are returning to the desk of uh, Quarter of International Trade Judge Timothy Reif, who we've talked about several times on the show before. If you don't recall, this is the judge who is a fan of peppering various movie and literary references into his opinions, which really sets him apart on the CIT, the court that I cover, which is full of like extremely technocratic uh, and often very dry and some would say boring opinions. Judge Reif often tries to kind of liven it up uh, with some with some uh, slick cultural references. He was back at it again this okay, week. Okay, wait. Before yeah. we even get into him being back at it, we do have Andrew with us this week. And I know where Bill Donahue used to stand on judges that like to be a yeah, little cutesy and put in, you know, quotes from movies or Shakespeare or whatever. I absolutely love it and think it's a delight. Bill was always my counterpart who hated it and thought it was a little too twee, I think. I Andrew, well, I, where do you I stand? Gotta- I got to say, I'm on Team Amber on this question. Oh, yeah. Judges who can be clever, judges who can bring personality uh, to their writing. I'm I'm all for that. I really hope we don't get a negative review from Donahue now that I've said that he was too harsh on this. Like, he would probably correct me and say that he liked it sometimes. But yeah, uh, right, right, right. (laughs) And frankly, yeah, I mean, frankly, I'm done with the ghost of Donahue lording over the show. Uh, But yeah, I, I, I also tend to take it on a case by case basis. I don't like say that it's per se a good thing um, or per se it can often be hacky but I mean if it's servicing to make the opinion more readable or more like an entry point or, or have an easier entry point I'm down for that anyway the point is uh, this week I, I it, it struck me because Judge Rife actually referenced uh, the film Philadelphia which Amber and I recently covered on the Pro Se Movie Club um, this was an opinion that uh, did he rem- say explain it to me like a four year old yeah, well, he actually he actually um, cited the the scene, the first uh, scene where Tom Hanks goes in to to consult him for advice, and he actually says, "Explain it to me like I'm a two year old." Oh, time. he uses a different age point sometimes, so he says sure. this in the context of a pretty convoluted uh, remand of the Commerce Department's assessment of levies on Chinese tires. Um, it's mildly amusing, but. I also wanted to use this space to tell a little bit of a deeper story here about my sort of interaction with the court and Judge Rife. I frankly should have raised this months ago, um, and I hope you guys will stay with me. It's a little bit long and windy, but I think you'll get a kick out of it. We're here for you, Alex. Okay, so on May 17th, Judge Rife issued an opinion uh, that was in a case about the Proper tariff classification of secondhand clothes, uh, clothes that are imported that are secondhand, and there is a dispute over how they should be, uh, which tariff should apply to them. Now, in the, in the opinion, he referenced uh, the 2003 film uh, Sea Biscuit, starring Tobey Maguire, okay. which is about the this famous is... racehorse, right? right? The horse, <laughs> the horse. Yes, uh, to be very clear, we're talking about the horse. Uh, it was released in 2003. Um, and he, it doesn't matter why that's, it's way too, it's a, it's very much a digression, but he wrote, and I quote, Seabiscuit's eventual trainer, Tom Smith played beautifully by Chris Cooper, who took home a long overdue Oscar for the role, end quote. Now this presented me with a dilemma because Chris Cooper did not win an Oscar for Seabiscuit. <gasps> Uh, he was 
shocked. First of all, I am shocked. I am thrilled <laughs> that you immediately identified that that was a mistake. I didn't um, even have to look it up, not to brag. Of, of um, course, you didn't have to, Alex. You are a cinemaphile, and I love that you noticed it. And this uh. was, I was in high school when this movie came out, and I was like a real Oscars nerd at this time. I still am, but this is like in my prime Oscar tracking uh, period. But this presented me with a little bit of a dilemma because. He he didn't win an Oscar for that movie. He did win the year prior for for playing John LaRoche in Adaptation. Right. Which 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 in my humble opinion is one of the finest movies that's been released in this still young century. Great movie. Uh, a great great movie, great great screenplay and he's a great and he gives a great performance. Um and and an all-time great Nicolas Cage performance as well. Um now Andrew, here's where I want to ask you something. This is not even like a legal ethics question. It's really a journalism ethics question. Uh, as a newcomer to the show, I didn't really know what would you do because I don't know if it's my job to fact check the court or am I supposed to, as a journalist, let the the the, the record stand even with its errors. What would you say? I would say, Alex, that you, <laughs> as a journalist, you have a, a duty to the truth and to accuracy. Almost in almost any context. And and when we're talking about movies, I think you have proven yourself somebody with a real, (laughs) uh, a real interest and a real stake in it. So personally, I think you're well within your bounds to point that out. This is the official court record. Is it not? Yeah. Uh, Well, I'm glad that you said that because that's exactly what I did Um, (laughs) after. So it took me about like a couple of weeks to decide whether to even say anything to the court, but I emailed the court. The, the 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 clerk and I just politely said, "Hey, this is wrong. Um, just want it corrected for the record. Whatever." Got a got a polite email back. She said, "Oh, I'm gonna run this up the flagpole. This is way above my pay grade." <laughs> they very quietly entered in an errata, uh, and I thought that that would be the end of it. And it it basically is the end of it. But there's just another little. There's like a coda here um, that I'd like to explain. So the very next decision that Judge Reif issued was an August opinion that upheld um, countervailing duties on Chinese chlorine. And in this opinion, Judge Reif went absolute beast mode on the Oscar references. Ooh, it was like he was challenging you. It's like a sporical quiz. Well, yeah, yeah. so it's about chlorine, right? The the, the dispute was about uh, imports of chlorine from China. And he took the better part of three pages at the end of his decision to talk about uh, the scenes in the movie The Graduate, where mm. Dustin Hoffman, B- Benjamin Braddock, is and- uh, submerged in his pool and then floating in his pool. There are pool yeah. scenes in the movie yes. that have chlorine. Are you following okay. me here, Amber? That all makes sense. But also, <laughs> I, I mean, our listeners can't see this, but you guys can on the call where we're recording today. My yeah. eyes have lit up with this because I know you love The Graduate. I love The Graduate. Um, it's it's one of my it's a it's a classic movie uh, in almost any regard. I would definitely recommend everybody read the Mark Harris book about the 1967 Oscar race and movies that were released in that year. Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate get a shout out there. Anyway, beyond him just referencing The Graduate, he went very deep on Academy Award trivia. If you'll allow me yeah. to read from the opinion here, please. He wrote, "Quote." In two of the pool scenes in The Graduate, the virtuosity of director Mike Nichols, who won an Academy Award for the film, 
and his hand-picked cinematographer, Robert Surtees, winner of three prior Academy Awards, including for Ben-Hur, and nominated an additional 13 times, including for The Graduate, is apparent. So he... (laughs) Wow. He he nestles in there a win and several prior nominations uh, for the people involved. Now... I just want to kind of put a button on this. I know we're going a little long here. Um, it's I have to stress, this is the first opinion he wrote after I had flagged his mistake on Oscar sort of factotum earlier. I have not spoken to the judge about his motivation here. Um, I cannot prove causation. I am merely noting the sequence of events uh, where he was uh, corrected about Oscar trivia and then went extremely, extremely deep on it in a Look, subsequent opinion. That's all I wanted. That's okay. all I wanted to say. What do you guys here, think about Here's this? my proposal, Alex. Okay. I know yeah. we are a little ways away, but that gives you time to prepare. Right. I really feel like you need to reach out to the judge and say, hey, do you want to come on pro se in Oscar season? I feel uh. like it would be the time for him. I think it's right. We can talk you're on, about you're the on law his mind. and and the Academy Awards <laughs> and how they coincide. His and movie maybe we juices get, are flowing. Yeah, yes. absolutely. And maybe we can get to the bottom of if this is a wonderful, delightful cat and mouse game the two of you are now playing about movies. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm certainly open to that. I think it's a good idea. We should probably do that anyway. Even beyond this sort of specific interplay, I'd love to talk to him about uh, the, uh, the, the references that inform his writing. But um, I hope you guys don't mind me uh, plunging too deep on that uh, on that front, I thought it was a was, very interesting. Was sort plunging of, uh, too deep another graduate reference? Yeah, well, you know here? the chlorinated uh, ice crates <laughs> from uh, from China. Alex, uh, you are can bring here. you can bring movie segments absolutely anytime. You know, I will always be on board. Don't count me out. I'll probably be back with one next week. <laughs> thanks a lot, guys, for being with me. Thanks for bringing this one, Alex. Thank you, and thanks for being with us, Andrew. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Chris Villani, and our contributing reporters, Van Guerreri and Rick Archer. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review. That helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, head over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.